0: so we are in Hosea 12. We're going to pick up exactly where we left off. Ephraim feeds on the wind, and they pursue the east wind, and he daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. So we have in context chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea, where this image that God asked Hosea to take a wife, knowing that she was a prostitute knowing that she would go back into prostitution. So Hosea is a husband who has tried to husband a woman who wants nothing to do with him and instead wants to go off and have adultery as an image of God's relationship or covenant with Israel. God married Israel who wanted to go off and seek after other gods and in an adulterous way, um, abandon the love and affection that God had for him. So chapters four through 11 have been this conclusion with little seeds of hope here and there, but overwhelmingly, uh, verses like verse (laughs) 1, where it's there's going to be this disaster that's going to come upon the northern kingdom. The disaster's coming particularly because they need to have a loss before they're going to realize what they had in God. And so God's going to take away their sovereignty. He's going to take away their country. Um, and we see, as we're getting into 10, almost a repeating. And part of the repeating is the book of Hosea is a series of prophecies that were given to the northern kingdom. Um, so when we start off in verse 12, uh, the implication here is that this is a, a just another one of these prophecies and warnings. Here's the good news. After 12 and 13 tonight... The book of Hosea ends with probably one of the coolest, most hopeful, most loving chapters of the entire Bible. It's an absolute stunner at the ending, but we got two more chapters of just this understanding of why God's doing what he's doing. The idea of feeding on the wind is that they're actually looking for it. Now in Israel, the the desert wind or the wind that they're talking about there uh, would be the hot desert wind. It doesn't have humidity in it. It's actually really harsh. And it's hard on you. And they're actually looking for that harshness as their solution. could be an image of Assyria. We don't know. So they can only live on this wind that they're doing for so long. It's all a lie. But he says they increase their lies and desolation. And this is the nature of people going away from God is that they've started with a lie. And they keep building lie upon lie to try to come up with answers. They make a covenant with the Assyrians. They're putting their trust or their alliances in these relationships. The oil going to Egypt is putting their trust in trade. So they're actually entrusting the very people that are going to chew them up. And they're hoping that that world around them is somehow going to provide them protection or safety. It doesn't. Verse 2 says, The Lord also brings change, charge a charge against Judah. Not the first time we've seen a charge. The charge there is like a legal charge. God's bringing this to the courtroom of eternity, saying, here's the case that God has against you. And will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to all his deeds. He will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us, and he took his brother by the heel. So, we have these images here of, to take someone by the heel, he's referring to Genesis 25 for your cross-references, and it's even at birth, Jacob was advancing himself by cleverness. The idea of taking somebody by the heel is that you're tripping them up, and that you're advancing by tripping up other people or using plotting and planning to get ahead. And then it says that he his by his strength, he struggled. This is a second thing, reference to Genesis 32, where he wrestled with an angel trying to get ahead with his own strength. So these are two ways to get ahead that are not godly ways to do it. One is to trip up other people. One is to just promote and puff yourself up and try to get ahead on your own strength. And in Genesis 32, 28, this is, and it's interesting that, Hosea is using these references that he would have had in his scriptures, and he's referring back to these things as though they're relevant in his day. So he's looking at that Jacob, and he's looking at Jacob as an image or a type of Israel, in the same way that we often look at Israel as an image or type of our relationship with the Lord. Because the Lord hasn't changed, but these reflections are things that we can gain more understanding from. So Genesis 32, 28, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. When God changed his name, the idea of him advancing by human strength is the problem that he had with Jacob. So when we see this image of Jacob trying to use cleverness, trying to use strength to visualize and actualize, that that approach to life is actually part of the problem with Jacob, not the solution. And so he gets a new name. Jacob is getting punished, but he's got an old name and a new name, and Israel gets disciplined and preserved in the same way that Jacob was disciplined and then preserved. So God uses this situation. This is kind of a message of hope, fairly indirect. In that sense, Genesis 32, 29, Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee, your name. And he said, where, why do you ask my name? So when God gives Jacob a new name, Jacob takes the new name of Israel. But then in return, Jacob says, I want to know your name, God, because he's wrestling with him. He's dealing with something that's incarnate in front of him, which we'd call a Christophany. And we get the same treatment. I mean, don't make a mistake about this. We get a new name too. And when we come into Christ, we get a new name. So this image of Jacob that's getting brought up here is an interesting image because Jacob got exiled just like Israel is going to get exiled. But Jacob also was redeemed from that exile. It actually prospered him at the other end of it. So Hosea is sharing this image and it's a curious image because there's a punishment that's being talked about, but then there's this new name that comes out. Isaiah 62.2, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all your kings and glory, and you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. God gives you a new name. Revelation three-two, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in my temple of my God, and I will write on him a new name, my new name. So the overcomer, those that overcome the world actually get named differently. And though they're not going to be named Israel or the northern kingdom anymore, they're going to take on a different form and a different shape. They're going to be the exiled or the lost tribes of Israel. So they get a new name, but the whole point of this is redemption. So we keep going in our chapter. That is the Lord God of hosts. So this idea of this, this struggle that Jacob has, it's important to point out that the Lord God of hosts is part of it. Actually, go back to verse four. It says he wept and he sought favor. The return to God, when a person stops trying to make their own way by cleverness and strength, you can then trust God, not yourself. The end result then isn't this false sense of victory, but a broken man. The result of Jacob's striving was that he wept. And Hosea is saying to Israel, the result of all of your mistakes is that God needs to break that heart, that hard heart that you have. And so what's coming is meant to do that. So he wept and he sought favor. All of that struggle, even beating an, an, a messenger of God or a Christophany, it didn't serve him at all. And in the end, all of his efforts bore the fruit of a broken man. And at this point in history, Israel is a broken country. But that's not bad. And this is where our flesh needs to just understand God's perspective. To have a broken heart isn't the worst thing in the world. It's the beginning of a healed heart. So blessed are the broken. It begins the Beatitudes. Blessed are the broken. And this is a good start. So he found him in Bethel, the house of God. He weeps. He seeks favor. He goes to the house of God. This is a good set of behaviors that Jacob had. And there he, God, spoke to us. There's a meeting place that God set up. And the broken heart leads to seeking redemption or favor, asking God for forgiveness, coming into the house of God, and that's where God can then speak with us. So who is the us that God's referring to himself there? There he spoke to us. He uses the word us. Why does God refer to himself in the plural? That's interesting. Also, there's some theological clues here. There's an angel that's a messenger. So when we see the messenger, because it's not an angel, it's the angel, it's usually or typically in the Old Testament of Christophany. The messenger of God is Christ. We just don't know the name yet. So even though Jacob asked for the name from the angel, that person said, what business is that of yours? And he doesn't reveal his name until we get to Matthew chapter 1. So he wrestles with God himself. Then we get to verse 5, that is the Lord God of hosts. Hosea clarifies for us, the person that Jacob was relating to was the Lord God of hosts. And the Lord is his memorable name. So the name we have for him right now is Yahweh, Yeshua. So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. So he brings his image of Jacob back to Israel. Now your job then is to do exactly what Jacob did, return to your God have a broken heart, come back, and by the help of God, because you don't redeem yourself, you need God's help to redeem, you do that. So the clarification of the, the plural preposition there, us, is that the us is the Lord. God is in relation to himself. He doesn't need more fulfillment. In fact, very specifically, that is the Lord God of hosts, hosts the Lord. There's actually three different words for God there. In, in fact, in the Hebrew, it reads specifically, Yehovah, Elohim, Saba, Yehovah, Zeker. So we have three names for God. There's the existing one, Jehovah, God of hosts, Elohim, Saba, and the existing memorial one, Jehovah, Zeker And it gets translated into English a little different, but the, who's the us? The us is this three-in-one being, this being with three names that we don't know the name of yet. And that's pretty memorable. This is a different kind of God. And that's why he says us. God fulfills himself in, in a three-in-one person. And the language there looks a lot like Genesis. And we've seen that a few times in the Old Testament. His memorable name, that's going to be Jesus, but we don't get that at this point in the book. Genesis thirty-two thirty, and Jacob said, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Jacob said it was a Christophany. He just met God. And so you look at that passage, you look at how Hosea is using it, and and you see humanity wrestling with God, and it hasn't changed since Jacob. Jacob. And humanity still wrestles with God. And and humanity then asks for the name, but God holds it back, and we don't see that name. And then in verse 6, it says, so you, by the help of your God. So we're back to this example of Israel needing God's help to do anything. And that's the hope. The hope is the discipline leads to God or the return. So we don't turn to God without help. He calls, we answer. He empowers, we give the glory back to him. That's the relationship. And we don't get to come to God on our own terms. We have to come to God on his terms because he's God and we're not. It says, observe mercy and justice and wait on your God. This is to be God's children, is to be God's servant and God's messenger. To understand the right relationship with an almighty God is to be humbled into that and to serve him and to come into his house. It's really simple. Verse 7. A cunning Canaanite. Deceitful scales are in his hands. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I've become rich. I've found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they find me no iniquity. That is sin. There's a deception in wealth. And Hosea is talking to a prosperous northern kingdom. They're at the height of their wealth and their safety and their security. But he's saying that that's not the kind of safety they need. And they've convinced themselves that they're legal. The Canaanites were known for deceitful scales. And the accusation is that the northern kingdoms become just like the pagans. Just like the people they ran out of this area of the world. And in, in, in seeing wealth, they believe that that oppression is then okay. That we're good because we don't seem to be cursed. We seem to be doing fine. And God doesn't see it that way. Verse 9, But I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions and I've given symbols through the witness of the prophets. You've heard from Elijah. You've heard from Elisha. You've heard from Jonah. You've heard from Amos. Now you're hearing from Hosea and you're hearing all the same things. All that wealth and prosperity you have, I'm going to take it all away because you know what? Spiritually, you guys were better off when you lived in tents. And when you were in the wilderness and life was tough and you had to rely on God for your manna and for the dew from the water that came out of the rock, that's when you were spiritually better off because you knew your God. You knew the effects of your God on a daily basis. So God's going to orchestrate events to take away all the meaningless stuff and get them back to spiritual blessing before he returns any kind of spiritual or prosperity in the material sense. Verse 11 says, Though Gilead had idols, surely their vanity. Vanity there is emptiness. Though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. The word heaps there is the kind of heap that a bull would make out in the field. So you have idols which are empty, they're made with human hands. You have bulls, they're going to turn into what bulls produce. And that's what you got for your gods. Verse 12 says, Jacob fled to the country of Syria, and Israel served for a a spouse, and for a wife he tended sheep. And by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he was preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly, therefore his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him, and return his reproach unto him. So Hosea comes back to this image of Jacob as the nation of Israel. And he's using this imagery in a way that actually teaches us that a lot of this Old Testament, though they're true stories, God orchestrated them to be stories that have meaning to us in a spiritual sense. It's why the the New Testament believers used the Old Testament the way they did. It's why they looked at prophecy the way they did. It's how we can be taught in the same kind of way. Hosea is building on Jacob as a precursor to the Israel as a nation. They both struggled with God. They both relied on their cleverness. They both relied on their strength. They were both exiled. They both worked for ungodly masters. Jacob's master was Laban. Guy was a scumbag. Both of their masters were in Syria. The return of his reproach will be upon him. Jacob at least got out from under Laban, but for Israel, the nation, they're not going to get out from under Syria. Assyria. It's going to be the curse that hits them and they're, they're going to have to own it because God's going to deal with them very differently than he did Jacob. Hosea 13, when Ephraim spoke trembling, again, Ephraim is uh, the largest tribe of the northern kingdom. It's a way to refer to the northern kingdom. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offered through Baal worship, he died. So the trembling is humility. When Ephraim was humble before God, He was raised up. God prospered and blessed that nation. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. There was no fruit. No point has serving Baal blessed this country. And verse 2, now they sin more and more. They just keep multiplying their sins, thinking they're okay just because they have money. And he made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. It's all human made and it's all empty. And they say to them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Like, you know, why don't you go kiss cows? If these are so special, why don't you go make love with them? Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like the chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Hosea, again, uses these really, those just glorious kind of poetic images to get the same point across. Uh, the morning cloud is one that You think there might be rain and then it just puffs away and it goes away. That dew on the grass, which is a blessing, it feeds the plant, but dew that passes away doesn't feed anything. A chaff that's blown, you get good grain and you put it up on the threshing floor. The whole point is the wind blows away the chaff. Well, that's what God's going to do. He's going to filter. He's going to sort. Smoke from a chimney looks like it's something, but then it just kind of wistfully blows away into the atmosphere and you don't see much of it. They puff up their human crafts. They belittle the human affection to idols. All of this attention on the human things becomes empty and it falls short of what worship should do. Worship should feed. It should bring actual rain of the Holy Spirit. It should be the grain, not the chaff. It should be the the incense, not the smoke that goes away. Verse 4, Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. And when they had pasture, they were filled, and they were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. You know, when you were hard up, you remembered me. And then you went out, and you got prosperity, and you forgot me. So God's going to deal with that. It's the same God, the same Savior, the same history, but very fickle people. They were filled. God was the provider. He actually filled their heart. They were satisfied. And I'm thinking back, and I'm like, yeah, they still had some gripers and complainers, but for 40 years, they figured out how to be satisfied. Their heart was exalted. That's not a good thing biblically. What we're supposed to exalt is the Lord God Almighty, but when you see your heart exalted, that's an image of pride. It's the opposite of what we should be doing. So their heart got puffed up, their heart got exalted. Verse seven says, so I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road, I will lurk. They're not going to see this coming. When you see cats, when they, when they do prey, or when they, especially a leopard, when it seeks to pounce, uh, it, it, it is something that will attack and tear you apart. Cats even play with their food a little bit. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. Don't mess with mama bear because they get nasty. I will tear open their rib cage and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O oh Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me and I will be your king. Really odd verses. I'm going to rip you up because I'm your king. And I'm going to deal the, deal this thing. This punishment is going to hurt. It's going to take this nation and the nation's going to be destroyed. You, oh, Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. The destruction's coming. You're not going to have a country anymore, but if you want help, I will still be there and I'm still your king, which means there will be no more kings other than God for the northern kingdom. Destruction then here is this destruction of self-will, pride, idol worship. It's going to go away. Only when those things go away can they notice that their help actually comes from God, not from themselves, not from the craftsmen. So they need a season without, and they need to recognize where to ask for their help. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes, and I gave you a king in my anger, and now I'm taking him away in my wrath. He's going to destroy this whole kingship thing. And if you remember back in Judges, that was what the people came and asked for. They wanted a king. And he said, I'm going to give you a king, but your hearts are going to go away from me. And when they do, I'm going to react. 1 Kings 18, 27. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud for he's a God. He's either meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. God's using the same tactic here with Israel. You know, where is your other stuff? Where are these gods when you need them? When I take away my blessing, where's the blessing from these other gods? Who's going to save you in all these cities? Who's going to take care of you? And so this idea of God just kind of pointing out the, the ridiculousness of idol worship, this empty worship of things. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, verse 12. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman and childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. In the same way that childbirth labors come on, they come on fairly quickly and they come on painfully and they come on in such a way that you can't stop them. Once the the actual labor starts, you're going through with it. And on the other end of labor is a blessing, a child. So this is another interesting image. Verse 14, I'll ransom them from the power of the grave. I'm going to bring life out of death. I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, I will be your plague. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. God actually doesn't have pity for death and the grave. So there are certain things God does not give mercy to. The price of sin is huge, but it's not so big that God can't redeem or ransom people from it. God's promising here, and do note that he will ransom. It's an interesting phrase because we start to get messianic. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I'm going to pay the price. To The other word is redeem. To ransom something is to pay for it. To redeem is to actually pick it up. So if you do your order online and do curbside pickup, that's ransoming something. If you go to pick up your thing at curbside, that's redeeming the thing that you've paid for. Two different behaviors. God will both pay the price, but he will also then come and pick his people up or redeem them. So you can think of this in the sense that that's actually how it's going to play out with Jesus. The first time he came, he paid the price. The second time he comes, he's going to redeem the people that he has called and he will pick them up. Oh, death, I will be your plague. Okay, that's, you know, maybe not the best Christian t-shirt that we could do, but it's true. Death gets the tables flipped on it. Death is the curse of humanity. It's been around since Adam and Eve. The the main bummer of human life is that it dies. We all have to die. What a depressing thought. And God's saying, actually, I'm going to go after death and it's going to become my enemy. So the promise in the middle of bringing punishment to the northern kingdom, God starts talking about what he's going to do in the future. And he's going to take away the fear of death because death's going to get plagued. I wonder what could possibly take away the fear of human death. O grave, I will be your destruction. The second promise that God makes is that he's going to remove the existence of a grave. He's going to destroy graves. So God's going to destroy the destroyer. He's going to kill the killer. The curse of death is going to have an end to it in such a way That we won't be scared of it anymore. Think of this Assyria is going to come and wipe out your nation, but I'm going to eliminate the grave. While the world eats you alive, I'm going to redeem you and ransom you out of it. And so that's the promise God makes. Pity's being hidden from His eyes. We know from the entire Bible that God is mercy, God is love. And when it comes to death, He is not mercy and love. He hates this curse. And he'd like to be done with it. Verse 15, though he is fruitful amongst his brethren, an east wind shall come, and the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Remember we started with, they're going to chase after the wind. They desire this empty wind, but God's got his own wind and he's going to blow back against this. The word he is used here. Assyria will become a prosperous, will come on to a prosperous northern kingdom and devastate them. Or the he here could be referring to the one that's going to destroy death and end the reign of it. And so you look at this, then his spring, his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up and he shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. There's nothing left for death to claim at the other end of this. So death has had a good run with humanity, pretty much 100%. And then God's going to come in and death won't have 100% anymore, which gives all of humanity hope. Because if death doesn't get the victory, if, if the fountain gets dried up, then God's essentially ended the plundering of death on humanity. Back to the warning of the northern kingdom, the capital is Samaria. And in verse 16, it says Samaria is held guilty. It switches it back. For she, not he, has rebelled against her God. They shall then fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women shall be their women with child ripped open. This is all bad. and and the image is striking and vivid. It's not pretty. Uh, we could expect then the last of Hosea's chapters to be a dark summary, a tragedy of everything we've been reading about since chapter two right? All of Hosea has been a bummer so far, right? And you're thinking, oh, another night of Hosea. And you think, oh, it's going to be tough. So the last 10 chapters, you'd think the next chapter is the conclusion of all of that pain and agony. And the end, verse 16, is some of the most graphic, nasty stuff we've seen. It's pretty dark, really. So what does all that darkness lead to? I mean, in a sense, going through Hosea now for four weeks, I'm tired, and I don't know about you, but you're coming back week after week. God bless you because the, the message of Hosea is God's ready to bring judgment. And you'd be like, ah, I just want to be done with Hosea. But then at the end of Hosea, being tired of reading it for 13 chapters, being weary of reading it for 13 chapters, having your heart just kind of sad for all the punishment that's coming for 13 chapters. But the end is not that. The end of the story is some of the most beautiful stuff that when your soul is darkened, when you do have the broken heart, when you are tired of reading 13 chapters of punishment, there's a nicer story at the other end of it. There's something better for the brokenhearted. Now, Jesus said, come to me, all who you, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I got to be honest, 13 chapters of Hosea has been a labor. It is a heavy laden that you go through it. But this is where the rest shows up. It's in the darkest of night that the dawn looks the best. And on the third day, he will rise again. So you get to 14, and I think we get this chance to listen, to get a glimpse of the heart of God, the heart of a husband that married the prostitute, the heart of somebody who's just broken hearted about his wife continually leaving him and he still adores her and he still loves her and he still wants to take her out of that life so he takes away the blessings so that she'll return to him God you know there is here a sinful bride but God also sees a hurt and a broken and an enslaved child he sees people that don't even know how lost they are they're abused and they're in need of someone to save them from it so listen to God in chapter 14. It's a super short chapter, but this is how God evangelizes the lost child. This is how God invites people to come back into the kingdom. And this is the, the way in which God makes an appeal and a proposal for life and love to be re-entered in someone's life where they're brokenhearted. This is how God asks for his bride back. It's awesome. O, o Israel. Again, the O there is an affectionate term. O Israel. Like just the first word, just that idea of affection coming out. Return to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Your sin is bad and it's made you stumble. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, for he will offer the sacrifice of our lips. Israel shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say anymore the work of our hands. You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. Essentially, say a prayer, say a repentance, and let go of the iniquity. It says you've stumbled. Don't defend the stumbling, don't make excuses for it, don't ignore it, don't belittle it. Just admit it. Admit that you've stumbled. And admit that there's iniquity in your life and come to God's, on God's terms. Start with the truth of the matter. God's defined right and wrong. We come to his definition of right and wrong. He doesn't come to our definition of it. And then it says, notice in here, in verse, in verse two, take words with you, right? Don't think it's only the, your feelings that you need to bring to the table. God actually wants you to profess things with your mouth. Take your words, say it, speak it. Tell God what you think. Dave Gusick writes this, God's word is intelligent, and God made us intelligent beings so we're able to communicate ideas and feelings with words. He gave us words. He gave us speech. It's one of the truly unique things about humanity. So he says, that's what you need to bring to the table is your words. Bring your words, and and, 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 and in another, another sense, bring your word, bring your covenant, bring your promise with you. And then it says, say to him. In other words, pray. This first God's asking to take away the sin, we have to ask for God to receive us. We have to ask for that forgiveness. It says, we will offer. There's a covenant again. The offer is a vow. So you make a vow or a promise. You give your word. We will follow you. The sacrifice of our lips. The word sacrifice there is actually calves. Remember a few verses ago it said, you know, you make human calves, go ahead and kiss them. But here he says, the calves of our lips, like a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of our words. The calf is just a symbol of the heart being sacrificed to God and given to God. And in this sense, we get a very New Testament idea of, he doesn't need your calves. He wants your words, wants your heart. So that symbol of the heart here. Words just suffice. God wants the words. What are the words that we go out of our mouth? Praise, worship, prayer, purity, encouragement, honor, vows that we make are all ways that we give our God our words. That what comes comes forth from our mouth is an outpouring of a new heart. This is the foundational idea for Christians. It's why Christians gave up animal sacrifice. At the end of the day, that's not what God wanted. God wanted the heart and he showed us a way to give our heart to the Lord by using our words. Hosea prophesized that that's going to happen here. Romans 10, 9, this is the Christian perspective. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you shall believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For the heart of man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Same idea here in Hosea. At the end of the day, just say a prayer, ask for it. Assyria will not save us. That's part of the prayer too. This world has nothing for me. It's a dead end. I'm done with it. Lord, I give up this world. I choose to serve you. The work of our hands, okay? I've tried on my own. It's a dead end too. I give up the world. I give up my own work of my own hands. All of it ends with nothing. So you turn to God and you turn away from the world. You turn away from yourself and you pick a side. That's all God's asking for. For you and the fatherless finds, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. At the end of the day, when that happens, you find mercy. That you don't have a father in an idol or a thing or the work of your hands, you have a father in an almighty God. He's our Savior, He's our Father, and He wants to be our Lord. That's the only path to salvation that's ever existed. Old Testament, New Testament, that's it. That's the heart of Yahweh, mercy. So finally, Finding the lost sheep, we get this beautiful image of mercy, and that's what we pray for. God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Receive me into your kingdom. And Romans promises, we see it all over. That's the promise that God gives us. He'll, he'll, he'll do something when we do that. There'll be a change, and that's where we go in verse four. We make that kind of prayer of salvation beautiful, and that broken heart is where you start. Then you get to verse 4. Here's what God promises when you do that. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. An interchanging of plural and singular. I will heal their backsliding, all the people that say this prayer. I will love them freely, all the people that say this prayer, for my anger has turned away from him, the individual that says the prayer. It's beautiful language and inspired. God makes a promise to the repentant heart. This is a promise from God. Like, don't take that lightly. When God makes a promise, that means we can repeat that to people. If you do this, God will heal you. And that's not me saying that. That's God saying that to anyone who does this. I will love them freely. Unconditional, undeniable, unstoppable love from an almighty God is the promise of repentance. What a prize. Jesus calls it a pearl And if you find that treasure in a field, you go to the person that owns the field, you buy the entire field so you can get the treasure. It's worth it. Freely, there's no cost to this gift from God. He will love them freely. There will be no charge for this. He's ransomed us at a price, but what he gives us has no price and he's not going to charge us. For my anger has turned away from him. Actually, God has anger. It's terrifying. It's something to be fearful of, but not for those that are humble and repentant. Soft is the eternal heart for the humble. Angry is the eternal heart for the prideful. When we humble ourselves and return to our maker, he forgives our sin. He heals us. He gives mercy. Wow. And then next it just gets better. What else does God promise? There's there's more. It's like when you watch that late night advertisement for $20 you can get the Ginsu knives, but that's not all. There's more to it. This deal is too good to be true, only it's true. So not only do you get forgiveness verse 5. I'm going to be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread his beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine and their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Not only does the groom get back his bride, he feeds the bride, she grows, she bears fruit. She attracts other people to come to it. The dew is this, again, we we saw that like false religion was like the dew that goes away. But this is the dew that actually feeds and he shall grow like the lily. What a great line. It's more than just condensation that feeds the plants in the wilderness. They're actually going to grow. God promises growth. Like a lily, God promises beauty. Lengthening the roots, he promises that you're going to get water, that you'll have more depth in your life than you used to have. Promises the roots also give endurance. They give a foundation to the plant. They hold the soil in place. Think of what these images are images of. Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Let's not miss the messianic aspects of this too. Notice in verses five through seven that the word he or his changes from capital letter to small letter. Let's ignore the ones that are at the beginning of a sentence. There is an interchanging here between the one that gets saved and the one that does the saving. And they're mixing these images. He shall grow like the lily. There's something beautiful that's coming out of these roots. And Isaiah calls that person the stem of Jesse, a Messiah, a Savior that's going to come. His branches his branches will spread, increasing the length of the time that you have shade. If you have dew in the morning and you have branches spread, that dew will stay a lot longer because the shade becomes a covering or a shelter to other people. It's a blessing. When Jonah was all upset and poo-pooing Nineveh getting saved, God gave him shade. It was the blessing he provided, a branch, a root. Isaiah 6 says the branch of Messiah will spread out over the seas, over the oceans, it will cover the earth. And both Jesus and his followers reflect that shade and shelter that God's kingdom gives. Don't miss that Israel here is a he again, right? And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road and others cut down branches from trees and they spread them on the road. The branches are getting spread. They literally get spread when Jesus comes back into Israel. Those that follow Jesus will be a blessing to the world, to everyone, and it's a sight to see what the church does. 2,000 years, the church has healed nations, built hospitals, created schools, gave food and sheltered the widows and helped the orphans. There has been a great mercy of outpouring from the church for 2,000 years. There's been ugly spots where people have besmirched and blemished that, but the work of the church goes forward. His beauty from which nourishment and oil come, the oil tree, that's the beauty. The other thing the, 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 oil, the olive oil does is it lights the temple. So it brings light to the world. Ezekiel 31.7, Thus it was beautiful in greatness and in the length of its branches because its roots reached to abundant waters. The idea of those roots is that they go down and they get life like an olive tree, which is precious. It's life-giving and it's light-giving. All of these images play into everything we've read so far in the Old Testament. They all start to come together in Hosea. Even more so when we get to uh, Isaiah. His fragrance... There's an odor that goes out, not only with Jesus Christ, but those that are saying this prayer of salvation and getting the forgiveness of God. The fragrance goes with an incense or a sacrifice, and there's nothing too shabby about these fragrances in the Old Testament. If I give a sacrifice of my lips, there's a fragrance to that. Ephesians 5.2, you walk in love as Christ loved us, and he gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. God loves a sacrificed heart. He loves the sacrifice Jesus gave. The sacrifice has an aroma in that it permeates the area around it. And again, those animal sacrifices were just an image of this. But when they were doing all those cows on the barbecues and that scent of beautiful steak went out throughout Israel and all over Jerusalem, that aroma spread all over the city and made people thirst for God. They would literally salivate for barbecue. What a beautiful thought. And that's not just me being hungry. I've had a good supper. There's the smell of frankincense, the smell of cedar, the smell of acacia wood, all referenced throughout the Old Testament, all of them having to do with sacrifice and the maintaining of God of his own people. Incense always has a relationship to prayer, the prayer that we were just taught to pray. The fragrance like Lebanon. Lebanon's known for its acacia wood, its cedar trees. And they made the altar to burn incense on, Ezekiel 31, on wood that was made from acacia wood that was likely from Lebanon. So this, this idea of this prayer is wonderful. Verse 7 says, Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. What, return from what? Well, in the immediate sense, return from the punishment that's about to be dealt out on the northern kingdom. We think they're lost tribes, but God doesn't lose anybody. So though the Assyrians are going to scatter these people all over the known world, that doesn't mean they're lost to God. So the entire Old Testament's pointing to this image of return. So in the prophetic sense, those who dwell under his shadow, this shadow that the northern kingdom is going to cause, are also kind of going to return, but they're returning to a Jesus. We return to his promises, we live in his shadow. He looked at Jerusalem and said, Oh, if I could just put them under the shadow of my wings. If I could just bring them in. So this return that shall be come, they shall be revived like grain. With the chaff gone, the grain can bear fruit. They shall grow like a vine, a vine that gives grapes, which are tasty. Those that dwell are grafted into the vine of Israel. Also note that the combination of grain and vine is a bread and a wine that go together, a symbol that we now use as communion. These are the fruits God gives. So they're grafted into the vine of Israel, fed by the same roots. This is an important connection. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Jesus used Hosea to say, this is me that this is talking about. And you're connected into me. And he's talking not just to Jews, but to Gentiles, all of us. That when you say this humble prayer of repentance, God's going to draw you in. The scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon, just like Jesus. The church is a gift to the world. It's an absolute blessing that's there. Ephraim shall say, Ephraim, again, that's a word for the northern kingdom. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do with idols? I've heard and observed him. I'm like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. All of the book of Hosea has been Israel saying the exact opposite. I love idols. I want to go after idols. And the accusations have been laid out. But after this thing happens, after God comes to redeem his people, then there's going to be a change of heart. It's like, I'm not even tempted by stupid idols. I've seen Jesus. I've heard him. I've observed him. There is a a God almighty that came like a green cypress tree and showed us the way. And not only that, when I follow him with a humble heart, I actually see the fruit in my life. I'm growing and I recognize that your fruit is found in me. Another way to read that is the fruit of life is found in Jesus Christ. The me there should be capitalized. And this is what God wants. This is his heart. Yes, there's punishment coming. But what I want is for you to say, I don't want anything to do with idols anymore. Because my fruit, what really matters in life is found in God Almighty. And that's where I'm going to have that fruit. I'm not even associated with idols, the garbage, the corruption, the ugly, the evil. It's not even tempting to me. I don't want to play with it. I don't want it in my house. I don't want it as a poster in my kid's bedroom. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to listen to it on the radio. I'm not interested in it. And it's not because I'm like legalistic about it. It's because I just don't want the filth anymore. I'm sick of it. It doesn't add to anything. I've heard and observed Jesus and that's way better. I prefer awesomeness to junk. Junk just ends up in a dumpster at the end of my life. Nobody cares about it but me. But the stuff of Jesus, awesome. A good friend of of ours died within this last year and at his funeral, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen happen. It's just gorgeous, like a green cypress tree. One of the people was on the stage saying, you know, our buddy Paul, he was a generous guy and he would go out of his way just to give little gifts to make people's lives better. You know, twins game tickets, orange crates, you know, here's the keys to my townhouse. Go have a fun time. And we just gift people with things because he loved to do that. And the person said to the whole room, Every, anybody in this room that's been blessed by Paul, raise your hand. And all around the room, one hand at a time went up and almost everybody in the room raised their hand. It was gorgeous. Versus a dumpster. What do you want? What does life mean and what is it worth and what's it for? Why, why wouldn't you come back to God who adores you after you've prostituted yourself to the things of this world? All God wants is for you to come back home so he can give you mercy and you can find fruit in your life. The kind of fruit that our brother Paul had. Not this Paul, he's still with us. Man. There's just no going back. I have heard and observed him. I've actually seen Jesus' work. I'm not interested in anything else. this is what I just call all in. You make that first faith decision, then God starts to do something in your life, and that's it. That's the hook. You might backslide. You might grow cool on your faith for a while, but once you've tasted the real thing, there's just no going back. Your fruit is found in me. Ephraim's fruit is found in God. And that hasn't changed a bit. I can see the internal change. I got new life. I got new fruit. It's all from God. Amen to that. Who would have thought this was the end of Hosea? (laughs) Also, we can see that anything we have to offer the world is found in God. So anything we have to give to other people is God's life coming into us so that we can be a blessing to others. Here's the conclusion. Verse 9. Who's wise? Anybody smart in the room? Anybody got some wisdom? Let him understand these things. Who's prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Here's the thing. When we look at the northern kingdom, when we look at Israel screwing up like this, it's easy to read through it in the histories, in Kings and in Chronicles. But what we're supposed to learn from that is that they're foolish, And so we choose not to be. The entire message of Hosea feeds the humble. 2 Peter 1.8, we just got done doing this. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord of Jesus Christ. Who's prudent? People that know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our wisdom, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Prudence is to understand this. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. But the folly of fools is deceit, Proverbs 14, 8. Wisdom and prudence come straight from God. And if we can understand these things, verse 9, we become wise. If we understand Hosea, if we know Hosea, we're not set off by the first three, 13 chapters. We wait for verse, the chapter 14. And we understand that chapter 14 is the cause of what God's doing, and the fruit and the mercy and the blessing and the redemption and the redeeming, that's what he wants. When we go astray, God loves to pay a price for us and bring us back to healing. He loves the healed heart. He hates the arrogant. Second Chronicles 7, 14, my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, and then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. This is the promise of an almighty God. It doesn't go any other direction. This is the way. This is the way. Isn't that like a Mandalorian line. All right. For the ways of the Lord are right. Oh God, I pray we hear this. Your way is right. I just, there's no other path. There's no other way into heaven but by Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to heaven but by him. Deuteronomy 5.33 is what God promised from the beginning of this history. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded that you may live and that it might be well with you, and that it might prolong your days in the land that you possess. That was his promise to Israel. Or you can be stupid. (laughs) That's the alternative. Go after vanity. Go after idols. Try to be more and more like the world around you. Bring all that garbage into your home and into your life and into your civic life and into your daily life. Fill up your schools with it. Fill up your libraries with it. See what happens. They're going to consume you. The transgressors, we end, we end the book of Hosea with, but the transgressors stumble in them. They just keep tripping on this stuff, and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't lead to anything. They just keep hurting themselves. They trip on it, and then they stand up, and then they trip on it again, and then they stand up. It's like a bad like gif, and they just keep doing it over and over again. And he warns, and he punishes, and he shares his reasons for doing it, and God tells them, and he tells us very, very directly how to live. Yet so many people say, I want to do it my own way, even though he says how to do it. And he promises them a way home. No matter how far gone people are, how lost they are, or how hurt they are, he promises a way home. No matter how aimless a person is, he promises them a path to back to him. And that path back to him starts with that humility and that prayer. And then it's fulfilled with all these promises that come after it. So we come home. And frankly, as you look around, as you guys are at your churches on Sunday morning and you're here at Bible study on Sunday night, we're looking around at the brothers and sisters in Christ who have come back home. What a blessing to that and to see that return that happens. And that's the book of Hosea. It's such a horrible book for 13 chapters. And you get to the end and it's like, come on home, family. Enough of this stuff. And that's God's heart for us. It's God's heart for you today. And whatever's going on in your life, just humble your heart before God and watch him heal it. Because he's promised that he would. And I think God's good on his promises. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your heart, uh, even for an adulterous bride like us. Thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us. Lord, we thank you that you have claimed us. You've paid the price and you've picked it up. Lord, we thank you for your promises of healing. Thank you for your promises of, of growth, of beauty, for a foundation and roots. We thank you for your promise of knowledge thank you for the the amazing way in which you not only heal us and help us and claim us but that you want to see us prosper into something that can provide shade not only giving us shade but helping us be branches that do that for other people that we can have an impact that goes over the seas that we can have a a, a meaning and a calling to our life that's much greater than ourselves lord may our hearts just be humbled unto you May our minds be dedicated and committed to you. May our eyes and our ears be focused on you and hearing you. And may your voice be louder than the noise. In Jesus' name, amen.